Good afternoon. Welcome to this week's edition of Navara FM. I'm Aaron Bastani, at Aaron Bastani on Twitter. This week I'm joined by Will Davis. Hi, Will. Hi. We ask the big questions as ever. What is neoliberalism and what would an economy beyond it look like? Will is a senior lecturer of politics at Goldsmiths and is at the forefront of a new philosophy, politics and economics degree. More about that later. Prior to that, Will worked at the Centre for Interdisciplinary Methodologies, University of Warwick, the Institute for Science, Innovation and Society at the University of Oxford and the Centre for Mutual and Employee-Owned Business, again at the University of Oxford. Most importantly, however, he blogs at potlatch.co.uk. So, Will, you published a book on neoliberalism last year, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, that was with Sage. Good yeah. book. Very much recommended. I read it last year. Uh, the, the ideas are still very much, you know, they still remain very much in my head. Um, I, I suppose to start with the big question, the, the, the question that obviously is per- pervasive throughout that entire book is, uh, you know, there's 101 answers to it. And I'm sure <laughs> the, 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 much the listenership is familiar with nearly all of it. But to reiterate that key point, what is neoliberalism? So I think that one of the first things you have to do when answering that question is throw out a few straw men and some of the phony uh, answers to that question because there are a lot in circulation. The word gets used a lot and one of the things that you'll hear a lot from uh, people who have not really thought very much about this or certainly not really read into it very much is to say, oh, it's just a term of abuse used by the left and it's basically just a term that is used by the left for anything they don't like about capitalism and in any case, what's the difference between neoliberalism and Victorian liberalism and and market laissez-faire and so on. Now, um, obviously I don't (laughs) agree with that, otherwise I wouldn't (laughs) be here right now. Uh, I also think that that uh, completely misses the fact there's been some uh, fantastic scholarship on the question of neoliberalism as a distinct body of thought and political strategy uh, over recent years, uh, which has shown that the history of neoliberal thought dates back far earlier than people have often thought, Um, that it dates back to the 1930s or arguably even the 1920s, and it wasn't simply something which emerged uh, with the election of Margaret Thatcher or or Ronald Reagan in the United States. Um, So... To give a concise answer to your question, I would suggest that what we need to do is think of neoliberalism and think of neoliberalism today in terms of the three major crises of the last hundred years, the three major crises of capitalism of the last hundred years. The first of which being the Great Depression of the 1930s, the second being the crisis of profitability and the breakdown of the Bretton Woods system of the 1970s, and then finally the current crisis that uh, emerged in the summer of 2007 with the uh, subprime um, crisis. So what happened in each of those three crises? Well, in the first crisis of the 1930s, you see the rise of Keynesianism. You also see uh, the development of uh, uh, the the growth of planned economies um, and uh, the inevitable spread of socialist and communist ideas in the West. And the neoliberal thought collective, as as Philip Morofsky has termed it, came together from a bunch of philosophers, lawyers, Some economists, although there were probably more philosophers and lawyers around it initially, uh, to discuss what it would mean to reinvent liberalism for the 20th century. That doesn't mean simply getting back to uh, a society of laissez-faire and the free market. What it means is to come up with a new version of liberalism that is compatible with a much larger state, a much more bureaucratic state. And I think most crucially, the rise of large bureaucratically organised integrated corporations, uh, which were not a feature of Victorian Mm. laissez-faire. So 
they come together, they create uh, uh, seminars, uh, think tanks, networks of uh, intellectual exchange, most famously the Mont Pelerin Society, founded by Friedrich Hayek in 1947. They span various centres of thinking, including uh, Freiburg, where the Ordo Liberals uh, were based in Germany, uh, the LSE, where uh, Lionel Robbins and Hayek were based uh, through the 30s and uh, 40s, uh, and then most famously the University of Chicago, where Milton Friedman, Aaron Director, George Stigler and Gary Beck were based. Um, and they develop a program which is aimed at reinventing liberalism uh, around uh, a much larger state, much more uh, integrated industrial uh, units of corporations, uh, and uh, but that would crucially still allow for certain types of freedom within uh, a society that had been totally transformed by the growth of, uh, of, of bureaucracy, social democracy, Keynesianism, uh, and, and elements of socialism. In the 1970s, the crisis of Keynesianism arrives as they predicted it would and they have the opportunity to propagate many of their ideas uh, through their think tanks through particular advisors through various channels this this has been uh, quite quite well researched by historians and uh, creating what what later would become known as as thatcherism and reaganism and a, and a kind of what was seen as a free market revolution but i would argue that that, that there in certain crucial ways there were elements of it which were it's free markets for some people, not free markets for everybody. Um, after all, it was also a, a, a revolution that was very sympathetic to large corporations. Well, if you're in favour of the free market, I'm not quite sure why you would also be in favour of uh, uh, companies like Microsoft or Google or, 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 or companies that monopolise markets. But neoliberals have always been quite sympathetic to monopoly. So that already problematizes the notion that they're in favour of the free market. Uh, and then, you know, the, the 80s, 90s and so on. Um, we now have had another crisis initially seen as a crisis of neoliberalism and people predicted that it would create a fracturing of that hegemony and a delegitimization of neoliberalism. Well, it may have fractured it in a hegemonic sense, but in terms of its control of certain centres of power, such as uh, uh, the, the, the control of the Eurozone, uh, the, the, the capacity to deregulate particular areas of markets, to pull back uh, social uh, security and, and welfare uh, from vulnerable populations, it's been able to go a lot further by uh, representing what was clearly um, a, a problem of over-indebtedness in, uh, in the financial sector, which became a crisis of public indebtedness by representing that as the fault of whatever, you know, <laughs> uh, benefit claimants and the rest, uh, that they were able to then uh, pursue their project even further. So that, that would be my sort of historical take on what neoliberalism is. Uh, so this is going to upset a few people. If you were to, if you were to look at neoliberalism as liberalism 2.0, right? Yeah. Um, to put it very, very, very simply, um, could you identify what the key differences are between mm. liberalism and neoliberalism? Mm. And one thing I'd like to highlight before you do that is that it seems to me that liberalism is characterised by fewer internal contradictions and less hypocrisy. Mm. If you look at, for instance, the repeal of the Corn Laws in the 1830s, that was an ideological, you know, that was being actively advocated by a free trade movement. You know, much of it was around, for instance, The Economist magazine still going today. That was founded in opposition to the Corn Laws. Uh, it was James Buchanan, I think, um, James Wilson. There was some very affluent uh, industrialists who had a real key interest in the abolition of those laws. And it seems to me that with neoliberalism, the kinds of con contradictions, the kinds of hypocrisy it allows, they would never have repealed those laws mm. in a way because, you know, they would have said actually 
actually landed interest prefers this. Mm. We might impose this onto other parts of the world or in other ways through other processes where the working class are hit the hardest. But when it comes to landed interest, we can't apply those same measures. That's, that's one element of it. Do you think it's more hypocritical? Do you think it has more contradictions than that first species of liberalism? So, I, I mean, and what, why, if it does? To, to, to go back to your, your first question, which is how does, it, how does it actually differ from liberalism? Why, why is it not simply liberalism 2.0? Um, the key feature of liberalism, and this is there, you could almost see this in, in something like the separation of powers in the, in the American constitution of the late 18th century, uh, is that there must be separate domains of society. So as people like Karl Polanyi have, have argued critically, uh, liberalism was about the separation of a realm called the economy from a realm called the state from a realm called civil society and that there's these separate domains and that the way that economic freedom would come about from a liberal perspective is that the state would simply retreat into its own political space and allow the economic space to take on its own spontaneous natural um, emergent forces of, of exchange and so on. Neoliberalism is a constructivist project and it is a state-driven project and what I mean by that is that it doesn't simply believe that people People will naturally behave in a competitive fashion uh, in the way that someone like Adam Smith believed. It believes that human beings potentially have a tendency to act in a, in a cooperative fashion or it doesn't really have any kind of a priori view as to what human beings are actually like. It believes that competition is a good thing and that people need to be governed and regulated and educated into, into agreeing with that and to conforming to particular ideals of competition. Um, so it's a state-led project for the uh, expansion of competitive principles, not only within the economy, where, where where the neoliberal mindset assumes that within the capitalist economy, competition is probably going to take place anyway, unless you get something like a cartel, which is you know which needs to be broken up. Um, but crucially for for neoliberalism. There is no separate realm called society or even any separate realm called politics or the state. All of these different realms must all be governed in a way that is economic in nature and in which the principle of competition and competitiveness is supreme. So you think about the way in which there was a, there was a, a, a policy idea circulating only last year uh, in a white paper by the Conservative Party that entrepreneurship should be taught um, to children as young as five. They should be given uh, pieces, they should be, they should be given sort of fake money and told to go away and construct business models as to how they were going to try and make profit and so on. That uh, equally, uh, think tanks such as the World Economic Forum that I that I uh, study a little bit in the book is very interested in, not in how markets are working around the world, but equally in, uh, in 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 to what extent do people have the right entrepreneurial values across society and in and in culture and trying to understand and trying to, to govern the social relations in ways that promote a particular vision of entrepreneurship, enterprise, and governing your own life as if you are a kind of entrepreneur. So I think you can sort of see the way in which, uh, you know, the, 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 the rise of a kind of freelance economy that we're seeing in the context of the current crisis, mm. which, you know, during the 90s was seen as a sort of good new economy thing. Now I think we can see it a lot more for what it is. But people are having to basically try and sell themselves to, to a market, uh, even when they're not actually sort of in a job or they don't they don't work for a company, but they're having to try and reconceive of themselves as if they were businesses in some way. So it's that expansion of economic principles into the social realm, which I think is crucial, with the force of the state often pushing it in the background. None of that is liberal. OK, so if we were going to look at one kind of intellectual mechanism, one idea so central to liberalism, that of homo economicus, mm. um, you might then say that liberalism 
um, seeks to describe human nature mm. as that of Homo economicus. They say that this is how man exists in the world. These are their, their natural features, their natural traits. Mm. And as a result, this is how an economy should be constructed. Whereas neoliberalism, it's more prescriptive. Mm. It's more a, it becomes rather than a descriptive statement, it's a political imperative. So mm. this is what people should approximate. Mm. So rather than saying entrepreneurship is a natural outgrowth of an, mm. of an inherently human disposition it's instead what it seems to me you're saying mm. is that it is act, it's something to be actively inculcated yeah. sort of internalized is that is that a fundamental difference between liberalism and neoliberalism yeah it's, it's relationship it to human nature that's right so so what so that's exactly right so i think if you read adam smith as as a kind of the the the, the great theorist of, of economic liberalism in some ways he's interested in the the natural propensities of human beings mm -hmm. and as foucault argues about liberal liberalism it's almost like a natural science that you see the economy as a kind of a bit like you know it's integrated with sort of agriculture and the birth rate and it's a lot of the questions of classical political economy between smith in the 1770s and 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 the collapse of classical political economy in the 1870s is about these natural processes and Labour being a kind of natural tendency. Neoliberalism, uh, which sometimes harnesses neoclassical economics, sometimes doesn't. That's, a, that's something which is potentially worth exploring. But it is, as you say, it's about trying to artificially create certain uh, types of mindset, certain types of calculation, so that, uh, so that the costs and benefits of decisions are made explicit. Because one of the reasons why neoliberalism uh, favours markets is that everything that goes on in the market is explicit because of the price mechanism. So it's, there, there's a kind of explicitness. There's, a, there's also a quantification of value that markets enable, which from a neoliberal perspective is, is a good thing because it enables kind of peaceful relationships uh, between people who, are, who, are, who might otherwise be in a, in a political relationship which is dangerous. They have a very pessimistic view of politics, a Schmittian view of politics, I would argue, that it's always on the edge of violence and that markets uh, need to be kind of artificially uh, created to, 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 to save us from having to resort to political solutions and that markets and entrepreneurial and enterprising and competitive behaviour, when done within the realms of capitalism, uh, will, be, will be peaceful and will save us from all of the ambiguity and the messiness of, of, of democratic dialogue or, or political power mm. and so on. So, um, so so, so, so I'd agree that this is actually a, a project of a pushing uh, constructs such as uh, homo economicus, to use that example. So to be sort of devil's advocate here, I mean, isn't that same, isn't that same approach there in Hobbes? I mean, you say it's a Schmittian world, you could say it's a Hobbesian worldview, and yeah. there's a school of thought, C.B. McPherson, talks about the rise of market economies as fundamentally, yes, liberal projects, but liberal projects that don't build on the thinking of Locke, they build on the thinking of Hobbes. Mm. Hobbes is an interesting theorist in so much as this guy is writing in the, the mid-17th century, and he says in Leviathan, um, his, you know, his great work, the outstanding work of political philosophy of, of English political philosophy of the 17th century. And he says that the, the, the most important political characteristic for the citizen of the subject is peaceability. Mm. And that's a huge break with what's going on with Renaissance republicanism before him, people like Machiavelli and so on. Because Machiavelli says, actually, you know, you need citizens to be virtuous mm. in, order to, in order for the city to be able to defend itself from... Uh, you know, external forces to it, and for the city to expand its confines and have an empire and to be um, successful, mm. you need virtuous citizens. And virtue itself, veer, comes from an idea of manliness in ancient Rome. Mm. Whereas Hobbes, you know, from a completely contrasting perspective, says, no, it's peaceability. Mm. You want placid, submissive, mm. you know, pliable, supplicant mm. subjects for the mm. polis. 
actually. Mm. That's what creates a successful polity. Mm. So there's, there's Hobbes, and that's his intellectual project in the mid-17th century. Around the same time, you have the beginnings of enclosure, Spin ham, ham laws mm. talked about by Polanyi, um, accumulation by dispossession of the rural proletariat in England. So all of these things that we're talking about in neoliberalism, you could actually say that, mm. look, this stuff's happening in the 17th century. Now, both at the level of uh, base with regards yeah. to pro-oppression by dispossession you know, of the rural um, proletariat, but also at the level of superstructure, also mm. at the level of ideology, because we have Hobbes, right? Mm. Well, I mean, I definitely agree that, that, that there's a Hobbesian dimension to neoliberalism. And, but in, in this way, and this slightly links back to, to, to your previous question about is neoliberalism more contradictory than liberalism? Well, and I'll come back to the point about Hobbes, but you could argue the, the, the contrary. You could argue that liberalism doesn't fully have an account of its own preconditions. And this is what Polanyi argued, which is yeah. that the liberal market economy is constantly dependent on the state, and yet it claims to be a, a project of, of, of kind of spontaneous freedom, and yet the state is constantly there kind of making it happen. Mm. In a way, neoliberals don't make that same mistake. They realise that they need the state, that they are not going to uh, achieve... And when I say this, I'm talking about people like Milton Friedman, uh, George Stigler, uh, Friedrich Hayek, the Ordo liberals, Henry Simons... Um, the various scholars over the course of the 20th century. So we're still talking about the intellectual tradition mm. rather than the kind of sort of those applying it. But um, they realise they need the state. Uh, and in that respect, I think they are Hobbesians in the sense that they have a pessimistic view of the capacity for organisation to arise without the centralisation of power. Um, and they have a very strong commitment to a certain type of rule of law. So one of the things that I've been interested in in my book is the Chicago law and economics tradition and also the Freiburg auto liberal tradition both of which are legal projects, attempts to reconstruct the, uh, the, the legal juridical element of the state um, in particular ways that are conducive to, to competitive enterprising activity. So these are actions which are trying to transform the state. They're not trying to transform necessarily you know, the market or, 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 or sort of trying to withdraw the state. They're trying to change the state and empower the state in new ways. And I think just a final point on, on, on how this links to your, your, your claim about sort of placid citizens and, and the need for centralisation of power, which is, of course, the kind of central Hobbesian uh, uh, claim uh, in a way that I think that also explains why the corporation is so 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 valued by neoliberals because the corporation is a way in which people can be governed in a in a in a quite a centralized way mm. corporations from a from an even though the corporations are not markets okay they operate in markets sometimes they dominate markets sometimes they pretend to be in markets but aren't really in markets which is how a lot of monopolies work um, but one thing which they certainly are quite good at doing is managing people and in a way one of the arguments I make in the book is that you can see gradually between there's a kind of idealistic phase of, of neoliberal thought in the sort of 30s and 40s where they still maintain some view that maybe they might be able to resuscitate some vision of kind of a free market economy and individual rights. It's quite normative, it's quite legal. But gradually, as the Chicago School takes over over the 40s, 50s and 60s, it becomes much more about how can we have a society that is free for capital to exploit people, basically. And I, I mean, that sounds like, you know, pejorative exploit people, but that's what capital is. Capital is the right to exploit. I mean, that's mm -hmm. almost like a definition of, 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 what, of, of, of how capital works. And I think what the Chicago School... Um, uh, respects about capitalism is the fact that it liberates certain people to govern other people within the private sector, thereby relieving certain responsibilities of the state to do that government. So it's better if we can just get people to go and work for Tesco's or get people to go and work for someone else or get someone under the control of someone else. I think a lot of public sector outsourcing can be explained in this way mm. is that I'd rather they were working for capita than working for the home office because then it's our, they're our problem rather than capita's problem. Let's get them out there into that corporation. Management is a pain. 
pain. We don't want to be dealing with management. Let's outsource aspects of the Hobbesian state to some of these private sector players. And yeah, okay, they they might be ripping us off. They might be making you know extortionate return on capital, as we know they are with those public sector outsourcing companies. But they're very good at controlling people, and that's a job that the state sometimes can't be bothered to do in some ways. Well, it's sort of interesting. You know, people always talk about you know the three crises. Now we're so familiar with the twenty twentieth twenty first century. Obviously, the, the crisis of 2008, mm. crisis of the 1970s, crisis of the 1930s, another crisis which is often under-discussed but for reasons that aren't particularly uh, surprising. It was over 100 years ago. It was the crisis of the, the late 19th century. Mm. Let's say the mid-1870s, the mid-1890s. Mm. I mean, there's a whole... Some people say this never happened. Mm. Some people say it was pretty short. Some people say it lasted 25 years. What is indisputable was that this was a crisis of deflation Mm. Um, it was very long and there was very low rates of profitability Mm. in Europe when compared to both before and after Mm. so that crisis of the 1880s 1890s 1870s you could almost say that was when capitalism was functioning in ways that its ideologues advocate in so Mm. much as markets were working pretty effectively new technologies were coming online production of Bessemer steel railroads Mm. etc electricity all of these were exercising deflationary effects they're undermining up monopolies I mean new monopolies very quickly came came about right but that low rate of profitability um, was effectively capitalism doing what it's meant Mm. to do according Mm. to its advocates and when you when you contrast that to what we've got now, say with Apple, Apple, I think I this week was a hundred billion profit in the quarter. Quarterly, yeah, fifteen billion dollars, right, twelve yeah. billion pounds, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, quarterly profit. Yeah. Um, and this is like you say, it's being lionised. They're going, this is an absolute. Yeah. This is emblematic of mm. the success of capitalism. Actually, the point is, successful markets, competitive mm. markets, saturated markets would mean low profitability. Yeah. That's the point of. That's how market economies are meant to be successful. So, is there a big difference between? The crisis now and that crisis of the 1880s you know what's your position on mm. that and and yeah let's go with that question so, well, first. i mean I, i'm not I, i'm not somebody studied the 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 long depression as it's often known of the 1870s and, and, and 80s and i mean i suppose one thing which i'm interested in about that is the in a way that's the the crisis of classical liberalism of of uh, and the rise of of corporate capitalism because mm. you that's when you get the mergers of um of companies in germany and the united states and creating the kind of corporations we know it today and you also get the invention of regulation as a result of that crisis so the sherman act of 1890 in the United States, the first piece of modern antitrust law, because as you get these corporations, so you need to get state instruments which are there to kind of regulate the, 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 those corporations. Now, in terms of the similarities between that crisis and, and the current one, I have to say I, I'm not probably qualified to actually kind of draw out what those might be. But if I could just pick up your point about profitability, I think this is an interesting point, because I, I, I found it sort of fascinating and also quite sort of shocking that, that that Apple story, that was the headline in the Today programme that morning. It was earlier this week about this profit. Now, mm. there are various things wrong with that. Is Firstly, well, I think everyone's agreed now, including the IMF and various other people, that, that, com- if, that what companies now need to do is somehow get money into the pockets of people who will spend that money, yeah. which means uh, into the pockets of uh, low-wage employees um, and in the pockets of consumers and households and so on. And yet, you know, in a sense, this is still seen as good news that, that, that more and more is money that is... Is that how it was being Well, it was sort of the fact that discussed. it was... Well, in a way, you know, it was, it was the largest quarterly profit of a, uh, of, a, of a listed company in history. Yeah. And... Uh, 
now, of course, it's interesting, but maybe this is, you know, we, we have to start treating that as, as, as problematic in certain ways. Now, the interesting thing to me as well about this, and part of what I do in the book is tell a history, it sounds a bit nerdish, but it's actually quite interesting, of, of what happens with antitrust over the second half of the 20th century. And in the 1950s, a company like Apple, which had registered a huge profit like that, would have immediately become a target for an antitrust reg- investigation by the Federal Trade Commission and the Department of Justice. Uh, the reason being that, well, there's a very large profit. They must be doing something wrong because, you know, if it's a competitive market, on principle, that profit wouldn't be that high. I mean, this is a sort of, you know, orthodox economics would suggest that there is a problem with that level of profitability. I mean, you know, if, if markets are perfect, profit would be zero. I mean, that's a sort of, of course, orthodox economics has a lot wrong with it. But, I mean, there is a sort of a... Um, and liberal economic orthodoxy is, is initially has always been against the notion of high profitability. Yeah. Then over the course of the 70s, various things changed intellectually, led by the Chicago School, also pushed by, as I explore in the book, by, by the business strategist Michael Porter of Harvard Business School, which start to treat uh, uh, high profitability as a good thing rather than a bad thing. Now, of course, in the 70s, this also comes against an interesting uh, kind of nationalist backdrop of Japanese firms were suddenly outdoing American firms, German firms were, were suddenly outdoing American firms, and, and the kind of profitability crisis of the United States was experienced as as a kind of uh, as an affront to their to their to their sort of national hegemony, uh, and therefore the, the 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 hunger amongst regulators to suddenly find a new theory which would deem high profitability to be a good thing, not a bad thing, was was already quite pronounced, uh, and that's what the Chicago School offered. They said, "Hang on a sec, if you're very high profitable, that must mean you're efficient, that must mean you're good, that must mean you're competitive," and I don't care if you've wiped out all of your competitors the fact that you're still making that much profit suggests that you are an excellent corporation and uh you know if there's anyone who's who's better they let's see if they can come along and challenge you so strangely then just to pick up on that point um the chicago school could almost be integrated with a certain realist understanding of international relations in so much as they were saying that for american power to be um you know for it to be an expansive hegemonic power there had to be a new sort of ideological menu yeah. that the ruling class could pick from, so to speak. But that can be integrated within quite a rail politic vision of international relations, no? Certainly. I mean, and I don't think that was ever developed, other than the fact that, as a public intellectual, Milton Friedman was certainly someone who had a certain kind of nationalist sort of element to his to his, to his beliefs uh, and to his own sort of identity as, a, as, a, as an American and what he thought America was about. Uh, and he actually had said uh, that, as a young man, he had, he was, uh, uh, had anarchist sympathies, actually. I mean, he, he believed in, in an America... Where, which was a, a sort of opportunist capitalist, you know, the, the America of the frontier kind of, you know, the state was after all a sort of latecomer to, to American capitalism in, in many ways, and he he believed that American capital was a, was a sort of virtuous thing and a and a noble thing and, and needed to be kind of unleashed in some ways. And now that is a obviously a, a, on a global scale that has certain implications. Where like, was he from? He was from. Uh, he was born to uh, uh, Jewish immigrants in, in Brooklyn uh, hmm. in uh, around about the time of the First World War. And uh, he then moved to Chicago for his career, and then he he spent the rest of his his life in San Francisco after after living in Chicago. Because I think a really maybe timely piece of history it certainly would be for me. I'd be very interested in reading it. Would be trying to join the dots between there was a certain working class ideology that was prevalent within the Confederacy mm. uh, before and during the American Civil War, which I think to me it really does resemble contemporary sort of anarcho capitalist mm. sort of Rand Paul Ron Paul you know, right libertarianism. Mm. And if somebody could join the dots, I'd be fascinated because it seems to me, like you said, there's a certain vision of American patriotism mm. which fits with this, right? Mm. You could, you know, you read the poetry of Whitman, you would read the, 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 the you know, the, the work of Thoreau, Emerson, mm. and you could very 
easily uh, embed that within a broader story which encompasses free markets now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I suppose the, the, the thing is that what I would argue is that neoliberalism is a, is a, is a, is a theory is a theory as much of the state as it is of the market. And therefore, uh, particular national traditions of uh, of, 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 of politics and of, and, of, and of state power will permeate how capitalism is conceived within neoliberalism. So particular normative ideals of what is good, virtuous capitalist or market activity will, will, will permeate particular visions of what politics should look like. And we could actually link this to back to Europe because uh, the European equivalent is arguably the German tradition of ordo-liberalism which has a, a genealogy which, which links back to um, the, the neo-Kantian ideas of, of Max Weber uh, and is uh, in some ways a, an attempt to turn the market into the guarantor of universal human rights backed by a very strong legal monet- uh, uh, you know uh, uh, tight monetary policy state um, and this attempt to, to to embed the market in a legal constitution or to create what, what some of them called a, 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 an economic constitution would be a kind of parallel example that while Friedman was sort of kind of trying to reinvent some of those traditions that you just outlined, mm. in a way the auto-liberals in the context of Nazi Germany and then the immediate aftermath of the Second World War were, were in some way trying to reinvent a particular uh, uh, Kantian enlightenment ideal of, 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 of liberal Germany uh, and were trying to use uh, the market in order to do so. Now, of course, that also has created sort of indirectly through various chains and, and events, including the formation of the European Union and so on, has led us to a situation today where there is a complete absence of, 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 of flexibility in that kind of framework because it is uh, legalistic, it is uh, universalistic, it is not prepared to treat you know, Greece differently from the way it treats Holland. I mean, it's a sort of a, a, a vision of a, of, a, of a common humanity that is kind of goes back to, to, to a Kantian tradition of German philosophy, but has now become a, a kind of embedded in, in a particular theory of capitalism and of regulation uh, with all of the kind of constraints and sort of inflexibility that we now see. So last question before, because I, I want to uh, definitely um, definitely deal with some strategic yeah. questions, given neoliberalism is a strategy as much as anything else. But final question before I do that is, uh, is a big question for me, and it's unclear. It's a little bit unclear with your work. It's unclear in general interpretations of neoliberalism, so sort of Adam, Adam Curtis-esque mm. um, takes on it i'd like to know what you think is neoliberalism an expression of economic interests or is it an expression of economic ideas because frequently it's almost seen as a kind of hegelian process i think you even explicitly say this in something you wrote in 2013 it's a hegelian process where it's purely you know it's purely being generated by an intellectual milieu uh, and that's all it is right uh but what's clearly you know you know, a Marxist, somebody like myself, would say, yes, maybe it will. It will obviously have to, or Gramscian, right? Mm-hmm. It will have to engage the level of ideology and superstructure, but it also has to. It has to advance specific economic interests, i.e., mm-hmm. those ruling class. Otherwise, it cannot become mm-hmm. a, hege- a hegemonic um, uh, state of affairs. That's not mm-hmm. plausible. It has to be both. Has to express both economic interests as well as ideas. So, given American capitalism, British capitalism, you know, European capitalism was signed up to the planner state, especially after 1945. Mm. They were signed up to Keynesianism. They were signed up to managed aggregate demand, low unemployment, um, you know, the state being a big consumer of a lot of the stuff that was being created, produced. Um, 
what happens then? Because at one point, the Keynesian plan of state seems to be the expression of the economic interest of the ruling class. Mm. And then, obviously, something happens in the 1970s where that's no longer the case. And then those economic interests become attached to a set of economic ideas, which are those mm. of neoliberalism. Or, or, or was it always a case that this set of principles, broadly speaking, expressed specific economic interests, i.e. those of the ruling class? Mm. But the working class was so strong mm. that they couldn't apply those without the birth of a new crisis. That's a, I know it's a, it's a complex question. For listeners, they might have to listen to it twice on the podcast. <laughs> I <think> I might. <laughs> but do, do you see what I'm saying? Because, um, okay, was neoliberalism in the 1970s an expression, an exp- a, a, you know, the ruling class mm, saying, oh, now yeah. we can do what we've always wanted to do for yeah. the last 30 yeah, years yeah. because the working class have had their way? Mm. Or was it simply they had had their way throughout Keynesianism and now they had to change something? Because well, there's a question there of working class agency in relation to Keynesianism then, no? Well, there's also, so there's also a, a, a sense in which... Um, the, the problematic of 1968 as well, which is sort of in a way, I mean, you can link it to Keynesianism, but I mean, there was a, there was a, there was a, a the, the, the threat that, um, um, uh, uh, of, that capitalism was suffering a kind of legitimacy crisis uh, as as was it, it, over the course of the late 1960s and early 1970s. And regulators were contributing to that by continuing to beat up corporations uh, and consumer movements were beating up on corporations. So, I, I mean, I would suggest that corporations, U.S. corporations, U.S. capital certainly needed a new set of arguments and a new set of justifications. So what I'm interested in my work, as you say, is that is that most of what I'm interested in my work is, is a sociological kind of Weberian uh, concern with the way in which power gets justified in the way that it gets justified. Why is why is inequality as, as, as justifiable as it, as it has been over until relatively recently? Uh, and that's why I'm interested in the history of neoliberal thought, because I think it explains how we came to justify certain things in certain ways, which I think that analysis is compatible with the Gramscian one in, in lots of ways, because I think it's important for Gramscians, you know, that that's something they want to understand. But um, I suppose what I would say about how does neoliberalism um, operate at, in a hegemonic way? Well, for reasons that I think are quite important to, uh, to neoliberal thought, neoliberalism is partly about saying that winners in whatever sense whether that be the best university or the best um individual in the class or the best corporation or the best nations on are not only entitled to their victory but they should be celebrated and uh, empowered further um now you see this in my own i was about to say industry which is sort of freudian slip my own my own, my own profession of, of academia um at, at the moment my own passion at the moment or, or where we've just had the research excellence framework which is a kind of very good example of how neoliberalism works um which is about basically ranking all the departments from first to last and one thing which you notice is that the, those departments uh, that incidentally cost uh, eighty million pounds of taxpayers' money to just carry this audit out over a couple of years, um, because there's so many departments, so much paperwork that goes through. Um, that those that come top or near the top love it, <laughs> and seven years later, when it happens again, they kind of come further down and they hate it. But what what happens by constantly reorganising society and the economy into into a distinction between winners and losers is you will constantly get the winners to help you do your work for you. And that's one of the ways I think in which neoliberalism works as a hegemonic project is that it's about rewarding people who are already powerful and saying you should become possibly even more powerful. We would rather give more money to the person who is doing well and less money to the people who are doing badly because the people doing badly are doing badly because they're, they're for a good 
reason, which is that they're bad, they're inefficient, they're not useful. So we should take money away from them and give it to the people who are who are doing well because they're competitive and they're efficient and they're you know healthy and they're whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So it, this is, I think, how it works in a in terms of understanding as a as a political strategy for winning over um, uh, um, key. As, key, key parts of, 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 of the polity, key parts of civil society and the economy is that there will always be winners who uh, who enjoy it, who benefit from it and want to have more of it and are, and are willing to, to, to effectively uh, cut loose those who are not doing so well. Mm-hmm. And as I say, it's a terrible example of how it can create infighting in academia is that effectively those, as soon as people do well in a ranking, they, they stop caring about neoliberalism and inequality and they, st- they, they just go on about how excellent they are mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. So, um, uh, so that I mean that that's one part of it, but there is also and one of the things I talk about in the book is the way in which uh, notions of meritocracy. I mean, not I don't call it necessarily meritocracy, but if you want to organise society as a competition, if you can convince people that everyone has a chance, then uh, no matter you know they may do badly some of the time, they may do badly most of the time. But if you can tell them they've all got a chance, then you achieve a kind of hegemonic project of people buying into something. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, I think in terms of the the, the, the kind of think about it from a kind of Marxist point of view, I think you know David Harvey in his book A Brief History of Neoliberalism. Probably kind of articulates this best that you know you have a you have a profitability crisis in the 1970s. You need to come up with a new rationale for uh, deregulating corporations. There is also a kind of the chaos of the collapse of Bretton Woods in the 70s, and you need to come up with a new type of global monetary architecture at which the United States is the hegemonic power, and that is what emerges over the course of the late 1970s and through the the early 1980s, and by the you know 90s and 2000s, it's 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 humming and the United States can remain the richest country in the world without actually producing any of the things that it consumes. I mean, that's the sort of, you know, the outcome of all this. Mm. Okay, so we've got uh, just over 20 minutes left. You're listening to Novara FM here on Resonance 104.4 FM, London's number one radio station. We have a fundraising week between the 9th of February and the 15th of February. So i just like to highlight that. Um, let me just, I've got to read this out. I did this last week, not particularly well. James's reading voice is much better than mine. Resonance 104.4 FM's annual fundraising week starts from the 9th of February until the 15th. With the funds, we aim to trial a DAB service, overhaul our website, and increase the range of our FM broadcast beyond central London. As I was so keen to highlight last week, by donating to Resonance, you are you know, helping facilitate what we hope is one of the outrider projects of a kind of you know, anti-neoliberal consensus here at Navarra. So, yeah. Um, details of the fundraiser events and listings for our annual auction can be found at fundraiser.resonance.fm. So, yeah, strategic questions. Like I said, we've got just over 20 minutes left. Um, so, frequently, I think really, okay, so a lot of people look at the anti-globalisation movement, right? And they look at the Battle of Seattle in 1999, you know, again, just Google this stuff if you're unfamiliar with it. Younger listeners probably aren't, which is scary. Um, Battle of Seattle, 1999, Genoa, 2001, Prague, 2000. And so, what you know, these big anti sums, a couple of hundred thousand people, 50,000 in Seattle, loads of smashing up stuff, loads of vandalism. What did they achieve? Well, actually, within the space of about 18 months, the IMF, the World Bank, the G8 became shorthand for global civil society about global inequality. Which it wasn't before, right? So, you know, it's the, 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 I, I, that was my view as somebody, as a scholar of social movements, I think they're incredibly effective, you know, especially with regards to the IMF, the World Bank. Everybody knows that these are the bad guys now, one reason or another, right? They, they might not be sure why, but they know that they aren't, they aren't institutions that, you know, uh, act in the best interest of most people. So, okay, so here's two questions of strategy, really. So at the global level, we know there are certain institutions which perpetuate you know, a certain variety of capitalism, neoliberalism, 
to the IMF, the World Bank, at the level of the European Union, the ECB. Mm. Um, we know about those global institutions. Is it possible to get rid of those? Uh, is it possible, also, could you maybe highlight some national institutions here in the UK, which, because your big, your, big, your big thing, your shtick, is about um, analyses and kinds of measurement mm. adopted by these kinds of institutions in creating mm. this other hegemony of neoliberalism, right? Mm. So could you say certain institutions at the level of the UK which do this, so like the OBR, for instance, mm. or the ONS, the Office of National Statistics, Office of Budget Responsibility, could you isolate a few institutions that we could quite easily get rid of right if you would yeah. have a uk series they could at least say well we'll get rid of this tomorrow you know quite easily yeah and also local institutions what kind of institutions at the kind of quotidian level that maybe listeners haven't heard of uh, perpetuate these kinds of norms these kinds of ideas so, of measurement i mean in terms of in terms of what you're you're referring to i mean I, one of the things i do focus on in the book is the way in which particular notions of economic valuation and economic efficiency get pushed by the state into uh, areas of of society and areas such as of culture and education and, and public services where things can all become kind of comparable and performance criteria are pushed. So we see this in, in terms of things like new public management, um, which is a, a movement within public administration since the 1980s to try and get the public sector to be governed in ways like the private sector. Now, it creates huge amounts of stress because people feel that they're constantly under pressure to hit certain targets. And I think in, in the health service and elsewhere and, and in education, we've seen movements re, re, against this from teachers' unions and so on. And I think um, there is, I think, uh, the way in which you take something like Ofsted, the way it goes around scoring different schools and uh, auditing education and turning education into a, a type of product that needs to be evaluated in a, in a strict quantitative fashion... These are the sort, some of the sorts of things that I think you, you could see as evidence of neoliberalism in the sense of uh, attempts to push competitive metrics and valuation systems out beyond the realms of the market into, the, uh, in, into society and into public services. So do we get rid of these? Or, or, you know, or is there absolutely no need for them whatsoever? Or? I, think, I think what you need is to try and find out, for, try and think about forms of regulation which are attuned to uh, greater forms of flexibility and are uh, capable of uh, recognising the need for um, uh, more local, more um, vocational types of, of, of professional uh, power inside things like uh, in things like education and yeah. and, and healthcare and so on, and I think what these uh, do is effectively create this kind of panoptical society where uh, everything is visible to the centralised state, and all uh, sort of the winners and the losers are constantly being kind of identified uh, in ways that doesn't actually draw on any of the kind of uh, engagement of those who are actually delivering services and so on. So I think. What you, I'm not suggesting that you can operate without forms of regulation in a in a in a complex modern society. But I think what what's needed is to try and uh, think about the staffing partly of some of these types of institutions where neoclassical economics or welfare economics or forms of kind of new public management have become these kind of abstract tools that are used to assess the uh, everything within our economy and within our society and there's no actual sort of um, expertise in a more substantial sense yeah. of people who might actually understand uh, what's at stake. So what kind of let's say if we, we, we were transitioning let's say we have you know a series of style European Union shift 
you know, the green left in the European Parliament goes to the radical left. You know, you know, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't think it's going to happen at Westminster in this country, but you know, various levels of global and European governance, mm. something massive shifts, plausible, and you know, we move to a post-capitalist form of production. Mm. Um, what kinds of metrics would people use? I mean, what would, for instance, you're saying you, you know, you're an academic, the yeah. RAE, ass- the, these assessments that you, are used to judge you, you, you and your colleagues' work. Yeah. What kinds of metrics would people focus on instead? Well, you don't need to have you don't need to have metrics. Well, you don't sort of have thing. them at all. Well, you don't need to. I mean, it depends. I mean, it depends how you, these, these are done partly in order to try and distri- work out how to distribute money. Now, you could distribute money in a much more equal fashion, simply on 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 on, on principle of distributing money, uh, 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 you know, equally across all universities. I mean, there's no reason why you couldn't do so that's that. That's what you'd advocate for instead of RE. Well, <laughs> something like that. Some, something like that. I mean, I don't think you, it doesn't actually achieve. Uh, it doesn't anymore actually even achieve uh, that goal because it doesn't actually determine a huge amount of distribution of money. Um, but it does. What it does do is try to create status games and status anxieties. That I mean, there's enough status anxieties in academia already without having additional ones injected. So it's tr- in a sense it 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 it, it, it almost deliberately undermines uh, egalitarian, uh, more solidaristic forms of uh, professional identity now so in a sense what 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 has been deliberately circumvented and I think what needs to be kind of reintegrated into forms of of, 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 of how decentralization of power works are intermediary institutions so that might be professional associations or it might be trade unions but these are uh, institutions which have potential democratic potential uh, that, that can that who's where authority resides in people who have been elected by virtue of certain types of um, uh, authority claims, legitimacy claims, and not aren't simply operating in a kind of managerial fashion of tr- how ex- power can be exercised in in, ter- in pursuit of the greatest kind of most efficient outcome. Um, so I think all, all, all modern complex societies with a with a with a nation state at their heart require intermediary bodies through which centralized plans, whatever they might be, become mediated out to to, to in a, a decentralized um, outcome. Now that might be, you know, the, the the plans for a kind of liberal market socialism of the of the past involve particular kind of planning boards where you would have. Um, uh, uh, surveys of, of of human needs, which were done at a local level, so that decisions about allocation could be taken, so as to uh, to, to distribute things in a decentralised way without the mechanism of the of, of, of the price the the, the market price. Um, there has also been a move towards mutualisation of public services at a local level, which, I mean, ironically was pushed by the coalition government. It's already been kind of subverted by particular kind of private sector interests who have created kind of phony mutuals in order to get uh, NHS contracts. But that's something which I've been interested in my in some other work of mine in the past, is looking at ways in which forms of democratic governance can be used as an alternative way of circulating information. Because in a way, the neoliberal claim is... The problem of, of, of modern society is a problem of complexity where we need a kind of uh, a mediator of information so that we can know where to allocate goods, basically. And the market can do that. There's nothing else that can do that. Now, you might say, actually, that in the, in the rise of big data and that kind of thing is, is already itself beginning to challenge that sort of thing in a technological way. But the question, I think, for the left is what is your alternative to that? And the alternative to that has to be something about the capacity of human beings to adequately express what it is that they want and what they need and for democratic mechanisms to be uh, legitimate for 
the uh, for taking decisions about the allocation of goods and the allocation of money and the uh, the governance of institutions. And that's in a sense is exactly what the, the neoliberalism disputes is. It says, well, language is kind of you know, democratic deliberation is 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 is, is dangerous. It's mm-hmm. ambiguous and it's inefficient basically. So mm-hmm. it's better that we have a combination of price mechanism plus uh, a strict hierarchical management. That is how uh, those are the mechanisms that are the heart of uh, to, to solve kind of problems of kind of modern complexity. So I, 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 would, I think experimentation in new governance models is also a, a kind of key issue for the left. And there hasn't been enough of it. And it's very, very difficult to do. So, And one of the reasons it's very, very difficult to do is that there are now quite sophisticated, extensive forms of regulation and infrastructures of, 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 of kind of national management, which mitigate against the creation of alternative types of, of, of governance in various ways. So you've, uh, you're part of a, a relatively small group that's heading up this new mm. degree, PPE, Philosophy, Politics, Economics at Goldsmiths. Um, you have written in various pieces about how these intellectuals are sconced within this neoliberal project saw themselves as exiles mm. and how the left maybe today sees themselves or thinkers within the left which I, you know, could be absolutely anybody often is anybody um, you know Gramscian understanding of the intellectual as somebody who critically reflects on their being in the world um, would be similarly understood as exiles right so I just wanted to ask this, I mean it seems to me because you know, one of the big parts of your how you understand neoliberalism, I, I entirely agree, is that you, it, it basically says, look, economics in the 1960s becomes this master science. And I think, and this is really, and this is something we had Leo Panitch here and Sam Gindin, mm. um, they said after the, the show, Leo Panitch said, what's your PhD on? And I said, it's questions of collective action, social movements of digital media. And his eyes lit up, right? Because this question of collective action, you know, if you want to read a work of ideology, people talk about Mao or Lenin, mm. go read Manka Olson, mm. James Buchanan, mm. Kenneth Arrow from the mid-1960s, mm. when they talk about the logics of collective action, mm. when they talk about reasonability, rationality, unbelievable. And it's only when you actually look at these primary texts, I'll repeat those, Kenneth Arrow, James Buchanan, and... Um, Manka Olson. So when you read these primary texts, these sacred mm. texts, and you go, God, this is unbelievable. This is just really flaky, you know. Um, but what, what's interesting is that those concepts, that economic imperialism, then gradually over the space of about a decade, two decades, then pervades the rest of the social sciences. So in my subjects, mm. you have, there's even a school of thought that looks at social movements, building on the findings of of these guys, right? And it, it, it you know, it's called resource mobilization theory. Mm. And it says that social movements emerge whenever they have resources and that people who want to start social movements in order to get resources. So they're called movement entrepreneurs. And this understanding of social movements literally says that grievances, literally says it's irrelevant. Mm. It says grievances will fill the spaces created by movement entrepreneurs. So social movements don't come from grievances. Mm. So you can literally enslave people and any response will not be because they feel aggrieved, but because they'll be movement entrepreneurs trying to get resources to mm. start something. Which yeah. I mean, just completely, it's insane. I mean, it's an ableist <laughs> word, but there's no other word for it. It's unhinged, right? So your project here with PPE, mm. trying to undermine this idea of economic imperialism, how crucial is it for a left beyond neoliberalism? And, and where are we in that, in that project more generally? Because mm. it's so fundamental mm. to the yeah. functioning of neoliberalism, isn't it? Yeah, and I think you think about the forces which, which it now can marshal. I think one of the problems is that, it's, that, that, that there's been the emergence of what Philip Morowski calls um, everyday neoliberalism, where people are interpreting their own lives in these ways. So, I mean, you, can over, you, hear, you hear people talking about, you, you eavesdrop on a conversation in a cafe, people will be like, oh, well, you know, I, 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 it wasn't a good use of my resources to carry on dating that guy or, you know, 
shows. So this sort of this sort of language is kind of um, is quite ingrained now. And these books like Freakonomics. God help us, you know, sort of which apply. This basically, guy Tim Harford, right? Right, you're the yeah. everyday economist, yeah. and but you know this 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 notion that basically what you're alluding to, which is that rational choice, an individualist rational choice view of of, of things can can explain everything, um, and then you kind of bring in a bit of nudge for when it doesn't, or a bit of neuroeconomics for when it doesn't, but always with this kind of sort of mechanized notion of a, of a sort of solitary individual at its heart, uh, clearly. I mean, it, it wrote, the, the, the authors you're referring to, like Buchanan and so on, obviously in the context of the Cold War, this is exactly what you know, the Pentagon wanted people to be doing work on and were quite happy to sort of divert funds in their direction and so on because it was, it was, a, it was, there was an ideological battle going on. Now, the question is, how do you undo that stuff? And I think it depends. So let's be an optimist about this. I mean, you could pessimistically, you could look at things like social media and say that it's, it's, it's just continuing this kind of commodification of the social uh, and that it's not actually yeah. sort of offering a kind of an exit. Now, I think to be an optimist, I think, first of all, I think maybe we have to sort of try and see that social media still retains some hope of of the social as something other than uh, a type of relationship that you engage in for your own kind of utility maximization or something, which is sort of how um, behavior or how, how things like free economics would, would, would view it, um, and that it can create offline movements. And there's been a lot written about, you know, the role of uh, social media in, in, in various kind of um, social movements and, uh, and, and things like the Arab Spring and so on. And, you know, you don't want to be too credulous of that kind of thing, but you have to uh, not throw the baby out with the bathwater. In terms of in terms of what um, we're doing with the PPE at, at Goldsmiths, I suppose this is partly about trying to get back to uh, a kind of traditional political economy view of the world, which is that we need to think about politics and economics together, and we need to also bring in the history of ideas and to understand that we are that the lives that we live today are formed by the construction of various institutions and norms and the propagation of certain ideas mm. and people it, people can understand that people can respond to it and mm. i believe it actually makes people uh, I, I believe it enriches people's lives because it means that you have the capacity to interpret your own misfortune or your own unhappiness or your own happiness for that matter and your own success in ways that don't simply always come back to your your own decisions to your own self your own brain or whatever the latest kind of airport <laughs> book tells you uh, but actually enables you to locate your experiences within the, the within a within a history and within a society now that's what c Wright mills called the sociological imagination writing in the 1950s and he says you know we need to we need to make the case for the sociological imagination now sociology is the discipline that i closest to uh, we don't in the ppe degree isn't it doesn't sort of have a, a sociology element to it but in a way i think the the, the problem is that that that, that when Margaret Thatcher said there's no such thing as society, a lot, I asked a class of, of, of not PPE students, actually, of a different class recently, you know, what do you make of that Margaret Thatcher famous quote, there's no such thing as society? A lot of them kind of agreed with it. And that's, that's the problem is that we, we have a generation who you, they sort of say, well, what, where is this society? Show me it. What, is, what does it consist of? Is it, is it sort of people trying to blame someone else for the fact they're not doing well? So in a way, some of that kind of what was at the time quite shocking has been quite internalised by uh, those born in the, you know, 1990s and, and, and since. And... And that's a real challenge. But I, I believe that, that, that partly uh, a kind of a, a, de a debunking and a deconstruction of some of those individualist discourses that you refer to mm. is part of that's partly what I try to do in the uh, uh, book I've got coming out in May, which is called The Happiness Industry with Verso, which is a history of the notion of utility maximising 
man, as it normally is, back to Jeremy Bentham and how that particular vision of of an individual as being uh, kind of manipulable, uh, a calculating hedonist has kind of permeated various different areas of business, public policy, and is, is now manifest in a lot of um, the kind of awful happiness economics of people like Paul Dolan and others. Yeah. I, I, I just want to say, we've got over five minutes left. I, I just want to say, when you know, it's strange because... The older I got, and the more I moved up, so you know, you do your degree, and you know, you you, you know, you teach young young people. Uh, only about thirty percent of the class often engages actively. I mean, mm. I'm sure, some are just shy or whatever, some are inhibited. But you know, and but you know, you think, well, you know, I went to do my master's degree, think, well, we'll get better now, right? Everybody's here for a reason. There's a real level of expertise mm. and specialization and interest. But it was even worse than it was at undergraduate level. And the level of ideology that I encountered, so I did a, my master's with international public mm. policy. So it was very much a practice-oriented master's, right? These people were, were, were doing it. They were doing it to apply skills vocationally very soon, two or three years later. You know, guys were going straight from there to being BP economists in Georgia or whatever, right, very quickly. And there was one guy, a guy from Singapore, and, you know, the big, one of the big questions was about China. It's now the world, it's about to become the world's largest economy. By 2030, it's going to have an economy, GDP, by one measurement of GDP, bigger than the US and the EU combined. And, you know, he said this is because of market reforms. Mm. You know, obviously, it's because of market reforms. And I said, his name was Tong. And I said, Tong, China has been one of the world's two largest economies for 18 of the last 20 centuries. You know, mm. Rome ran a trade deficit with Han China. Mm. Do you not think there's more to it than just, you know, market reforms? Mm. And he just looked at me like, you know... And actually, this guy was really stupid. He was really thick, you know, because he'd had a certain, he'd been privy to a certain kind of education. This guy's mm. probably going to work in the Singapore Treasury mm. or something. And so that's why I think that the, the project that you're involved with is actually a really, a really crucial one. Mm. Um, do you think there are others like it? Have you, in, 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 to a certain extent, I, I would situate Navarra as a similar project mm. based mm. within civil society you know, about propagation of ideas and undermining, you know, currently hegemonic ones. Mm within a, a relatively large audience, one hopes. Do you see other projects within the academy similar to what you're doing with PP at Goldsmiths? Well, I think there are there is heterodox economics, which is has lots of, of promise, I think. And at the moment, now, now that people are beginning to realise that some of the central institutions of, of capitalism, as we now know it, are not actually about sort of markets where individuals come together and have some kind of free exchange in some sort of beautiful Adam Smith-like way, but actually involve uh, financial relationships over time. And when you have relationships over time, that creates opportunities for uh, uh, rent-seeking and for uh, power inequalities to develop within capitalism. I think heterodox economics is a very, very important part way of, of trying to, to bring some of that sort of thing to light, because a lot of that is, is missing from a lot of orthodox economics and that's going on in various places places like SOAS and uh, and, and, and others and um, Greenwich just had a start a new faculty now I think oh really I right. think so, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and Kingston Steve Keane's gone to Kingston yeah. and um uh, there's also now I'm going to forget the name, but who was the the, the place in the United States which debunked the famous um, uh, uh, paper on austerity? Where anyway, I, the, the, there's a heterodox economics centre. So it, was anyway. on, it was on the edge of everybody's tongue two years yeah, ago. Yeah, no, no, I know. Um, but um, so there are these sort of there are these centres around the place, and there are of course still the kind of great 
sort of a few great political economists, most of them are Marxists. I mean, for a while, political economy meant Marxist. Yeah. I mean, that, that I think is beginning to change, particularly a lot of people, more people are reading Karl Polanyi these days. Yeah. We teach Karl Polanyi in our, in our PPE degree. Um, and uh, so, so there are various places. But I do think actually what's interesting is that some of the blogs, New Left Project, Navara, various things, places like Open Democracy, a lot of the most interesting ideas where people can actually work across disciplines, throw the, the rule books out the window, are operating online and are outside of the academy. Business schools as well, incidentally. Many of them can be places for this sort of thing. So, quick question: you, you still have hope for the academy then, in terms of some kind of counter-revolution to, neo- to neoliberalism? Yeah, because some people don't, right? A lot of you know, even Varoufakis was talking. The new Greek finance minister, mm. he's coming out of you know the academy. He said, "No way." You think there's? I certainly think there's still hope for, for, from the academy. I think that it's partly about ducking and diving in amongst forms of audit and in amongst forms of um, enforced attempts to kind of compete according to, 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 to metrics and rankings that you, fundamentally you don't really care about. So you have to do a little bit of, 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 of that sort of thing. But I think ultimately uh, the, the academy is still not an entirely kind of commodified space. And I, 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 yeah, I certainly have hope for the academy. And I think a place like Goldsmiths is, 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 a, is a, a shining light of what that that could look like excellent well on that note thank you very much will uh, this is aaron bastani you're listening to navara fm and navara media on resonance 104.4 fm see you same time same place next week bye